Be in Acts, what are we, 21 this morning. sermon I think the sermon will be from verse 14 right right verse 1 hear God's word When we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, from there to Patara. Having found a ship, crossed over to Phoenicia. We went aboard and we set sail. When we had came came in sight of Cyprus, landing on the left, we kept sailing to, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria, landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. They kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey. While they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city, after kneeling down on the beach praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and after greeting the brothers, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. We stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. After these things, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Mason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you, oh God, you who are a transcendent God are also an imminent God. You're not just far off, you are exceedingly near. And you reveal yourself to us, both in Scripture and in nature. We pray, Lord, this morning for the proclamation of your word, that you have mercy upon me, Holy Spirit, that the words of my lips, the meditation of my heart, the sermon, would be pleasing, glorifying to you, and edifying to your people. Have mercy, Lord God, on both me as the speaker and all of us as the recipients. And bless your holy name. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I mentioned that my purpose for this morning is is really to just unpack verse 14. There's a lot here. There's some perplexing things about the prophetesses and so on. That might make a fun Bible study. I'll let the elders handle that one. I'm going to take this morning, I want to unpack the idea of submission to the will of God, hence the title, which is basically lifted from verse 14. I, I will bring in other things from the particular, from the surrounding passage, but I want to see them in context with that idea of um, submitting to the will of uh, God. The way that this particular act chapter opens, excuse me, is very similar with what we've seen previous. The Holy Spirit inspires Luke, who's the human author of this book, Paul's doctor companion, to, uh, to write out the itinerary 
of the Apostle Paul. The last time we were together in chapter 20, I think 17 to the end of the chapter, Paul comes from Ephesus, he, he sails down to Miletus, and then we see him on his knees on the beach, and he's praying and weeping, I think, with, with the elders, saying essentially, you're never going to see me again. And, um, and, and now here we find him uh, on the boat and a little bit of the itinerary. And so what the apostle is doing in this itinerary, excuse me, the apostle Paul, is he's sailing, okay, Ephesians is he, Ephesus is here, he's sailing south and then east. He's going to Jerusalem, if you remember. And so Kos is an island, it's a small island under Miletus, a little bit southeast, a larger island is Rhodes. He lands on the, the, the southern, not the complete southern tip of Asia Minor, but close, Patera. And then Cyprus is a larger island off of, I think, Syria. I think that's right. And he sails around Syria. And then he lands on the coast. And we have these two Phoenician cities. And so he lands in um, Tyre which was a previously a, a, a um, Phoenician city, modern Syria. No, I think this would be modern Lebanon, actually. And then he lands in Caesarea, which is in Judea. And then from Caesarea, now we're on the coast. I think it's 55 miles, something like that, southeast to get to Jerusalem. And so that's the itinerary. And when you look at these things... Um, at first glance, when I looked at this passage, I said, what in the world? How am I going to preach a sermon from this? Like, here's the Apostle Paul's itinerary. Praise God, let's go home. Um, there doesn't, when you first read it, there doesn't really appear to be anything of theological importance here. However, since we know the Bible says, I, I think it's like Roman, uh, I know it's 1 Corinthians 10 and then Romans something or other. Everything is written for our what? Our instruction. And all of the Bible is God-breathed, spirit-breathed. And so that includes even itineraries, which is why I'm loath to jump over, say, like genealogies. And who, who but a crazy person would preach through, uh, through numbers? <laughs> Hello. So everything in the Bible, even the itinerary, is there for our instruction. And when the Bible says instruction, it means moral or religious instruction. So it's God's mind that put this here. And so that means we should look for... We should look for the particular importance. But when we think of the itinerary, it, would, it seems at first glance like you would think this is almost like saying, I'm going to um, Monday, I'm going away to a minister's meeting, and I plan in my stop, I'm going to go here, and then we're going to eat at Ted's, and then I'm going to get gas when we hit Live Oak. This is almost like where you get gas and eat. However, when you step back and you look at these places, these are real places, all of it's real. If you were going to today sail from Ephesus and make it down to Jerusalem, this would be one of the ways that you would do it. And so what does that teach us just generally about the Christian faith? That's true. So we've mentioned this before. Time and place indicators teach the historicity of the Christian faith. So this isn't Tolkien, this isn't Middle Earth, this isn't the Orcs, this isn't even like the Bhagavad Gita or these other religions with these other books hanging around with a blue person and rats. And I'm not making fun of those. But this is not myth. This isn't Joe Campbell, the, the, the power of the mystery of myth. He was a heretic, Joe Campbell. So he's wrong. This is not myth. Christianity is not mythological. It's very much history. There's real costs, there's real roads, there's real Ephesus. There's real Jerusalem. There's real Syria. So all of these places that Paul went to, they're there today. You can go to them today. So when someone says, well, this is, you're just believing a made-up story, the Apostle Peter says, we don't believe fables. Now, in relationship to what we're considering today, the doctrine of submitting to the will of God, what is that going to teach us? When, this is very common. If you're a believer and you have people that you love that are not believers, they think, they say things like this, you and your mysterious friend in the sky, you're just going to trust in your secret invisible friend, right? They're mocking. So where is God? Where is the power of his coming? All of that. Well, the Bible says that. So this is here, this itinerary is here to tell God's people, when you submit to God, when you submit to his revealed will, which is the Bible, 
you're believing the truth. You're submitting to a real God. This is not a made-up God. This is not myth. Now, can the unbeliever acknowledge that? Romans 8, 7, not unless the Holy Spirit works in him. They're not able to. They're at enmity. They're not spiritual. So we can't talk a person into believing, but this is here to bolster our faith. So when you say, I am going to submit to the will of God, both as he reveals himself in Scripture and in providence, we're submitting to the God that is. We are in the right. Even though we can't prove it to the unbeliever, God the Holy Spirit can prove it, but you are submitting your will to a true and a living God. Does that make sense? So this is here to encourage the faithful to believe in a God who is. Our faith is a historical religion. Every time the pagan says, I'm going to finally find some evidence, I'm going to dig something up that will disprove the Bible. They don't. It's the exact opposite. They dig something up that says, here's King David's this or King David's that. The historicity of the faith such that we would further submit our wills to God's will. But back to verse 14. Look at verse 14. So these are the friends of the Apostle Paul, but Paul says in verse 13 essentially the same thing. Paul says in 21.13, he's been told by these people, but he's already been told by Christ. This is, Jesus has told Paul this from, the, from day one. He tells Ananias, Jesus does, in, in, in Acts chapter 9, uh, he, he says to Ananias, go see the Apostle Paul. Saul of says. And Ananias says, we've heard this guy is trying to kill all your people and he hates you. He says, he doesn't hate me anymore. He's a chosen instrument of mine. And he's going to bear witness. He's going to be a martyr, martyreo. That's what it means to bear witness. You're going to live for Jesus and you're going to seal your testimony with your blood. That's Paul's, te- that's Paul's calling. And he says, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. So Paul, God has not hid it from Paul. My plan for you, Paul, is to proclaim my gospel, my name, before Jews and Gentiles, and they're going to kill you for it. You are going to die as a martyr for the holy faith. That's your plan. So when Paul says, it's not just these previous prophets or Agabus that says these things, the Holy Spirit's already told Paul, the risen Christ has told Paul, you're going to die for your service to Christ. And he says in verse 13, I, I am, I, I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He's submitting to the will of God for his life. Now, if you know your Bible, you're going to think, is this like Peter? No, this is not like Peter. When Paul says, I'm ready to die, does it sound like Peter here? Does it sound? Is there something different? When Peter says, I'm ready to die, what does he say around that conversation? Even if everyone falls away, you are looking at the guy that will not. I will submit myself to you. Peter relies upon his flesh and he fails. The Apostle Paul is not relying upon his flesh. He's relying upon Christ. He's walking by faith. And what's that Philippians 4.13? Through Christ I can do all things, even live for Christ, even live for Christ and die for Christ. So Paul in verse 13 says, I'm going to submit my will to the will of my God and my Christ. I'm submitting my will to his will. Thy will be done. And then Paul's friends, in verse 14, they say the same thing. Since he would not be persuaded, he would live to Christ and seal his testimony with his blood. They fell silent, remarking, and look at the phrase, thy, the will of the Lord be uh, done. That, that's what I want to unpack. And... Um, Paul is submitting to the will of God for his life. These friends of Paul are submitting to the will of God for their life. And I will bring this out and maybe we'll unpack it. The reference is death, and we're going to talk about that as we go through the sermon. And I hope it's not inordinately heavy or my Irish is coming out. But clearly the reference is afflictive providences and ultimately death, the last enemy. And so Paul says, I'm ready to die for Christ, and he means it. And he means to be faithful unto death. So he's not going to stop serving Jesus until he dies. And then these friends of Paul, actually in reference to Paul's death, we could make application to their own death for Christ's sake, but in reference to a person they love, they're submitting to the will of God. So we give our life, we give everything to Christ, even unto death, and then our loved ones, which is this, 
we likewise give them unto God in Christ. They belong to us, to, to them, to God anyways. All of the loved ones we have, we have as, uh, in stewardship as Christians. Um, next to Christ, my wife is my greatest gift. But I'm just a steward of my wife. So I, either I will die before my wife or she will die before me. I know every, every husband and wife that love one another, how do we think we want to die? <laughs> After I just ate a big pizza, we're going to have a heart attack together and then we're going we're to leave. But more than likely, one of us will go before the other one, right? So we commit not only ourselves unto God and Christ, unto death, the ones that we love. Because again, our body as, as stewardship to serve God, our loved ones, our wives, our husbands, our children, our grandchildren, we don't own them. We're, we're, we're Christ's stewards. And so there's going to come a day when he says, I want my, my, my son or my daughter back. And we have to say at that time, like Job, naked I came from my womb um, and, and I'm going to leave. The will of the Lord be done. That's this passage. So it is <clears throat> kind of a heavy passage, but it is um, the truth of it. <clears throat> I mentioned it in my prayer, I think. There are two ways in which God expresses his will. We talk about this a lot. The Puritans would say God has two books, the book of Scripture and the book of, um, of, uh, of nature. So God reveals himself savingly or salvifically in the Bible, for our purposes, Bible. So he, re- he reveals himself as the God that is in Scripture, and he shows us in Scripture what he wants man to believe about himself and what duty he requires of man. So both gospel and law. And the principal message of Scripture is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation in Christ. There are lots of ancillary or secondary things, but that's the main thing. So if you study the Bible and and you miss that, you've missed the main thing. So God reveals himself in the Scripture that God is and he's merciful. Our brother George's was an excellent sermon at Sunday school this morning on penal substitution, which is the essence of the gospel. And sometimes people think, well, you know, God is just, or God is, has wrath, and God has mercy. Well, he's 100% everything, and how that works, I don't know. It's what the theologians call the simplicity of God. Go study that. If you could, if you could figure that out, you come talk to me, because you are in the deep end of the theological swimming pool, the simplicity of God. So sometimes the unbeliever will say, oh, the God of the Bible is filled with wrath. If the God of the Bible is all wrath, you would have three chapters, and it would conclude with verse 8 in chapter 3, and then, then he, he would hear, everyone would hear depart. So from Genesis, because you have the fall of man in Genesis, Genesis 3, 1 through 8. Genesis 3, 15 to Revelation 22, you can just stamp, God is a merciful God. God means to save sinners. So that's what the Bible is presenting us. Sinners who deserve wrath, God extends mercy in his Redeemer, Christ Jesus. That's one revealed will of God. That's how we know the will of God. What do you want me to believe about you, God? You read the Bible. So if you sit around, I don't know. What does God want me to believe? I don't know. Open the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I'll give you one. If you do not have a Bible, you don't leave this church. I will give you a Bible. And then you can know the will of God. You can know the character of God. You can know the love of God. You can know the duty he requires of you. The other way that God reveals his will to us is in nature. And that's the book of Providence. That's why we read from our shorter catechism, question and answer 11, his holy, powerful, preserving. And he governs all of his creatures and all their what? Actions. That's the sovereignty of God. If you know your Bible, this is Ephesians 1.11. He runs the show. How much of the show does he run? All of it. So remember he says, Jesus says in Matthew 10, so when the, the sparrow falls out of the ground, who caused that sparrow to fall out of the ground? God. Now, now that I'm pushing 60, I, I have on my phone my marriage picture of me and my wife. And she looked at it the other day and she said, boy, you had fabulous hair back then. <laughs> well, I don't have fabulous hair back then because it's all fallen out. And Jesus says, like the sparrow, not even your hair falls to the ground but by the will of your heavenly Father. There's that idea of submitting. What, what, what kind of God are we submitting our will to? What, what's the nature of his will? He governs all his creatures and all their actions. And I will tell you right now, because if you're a smart person, or if you have smart, unbelieving friends, they're going to give you the problem of evil or the problem of Satan. If God is that sovereign, how does God's will work 
with the nature of sin. I'm going to tell you right now, it does, but I don't understand it. He's, he's not culpable for sin. James 1.13, he's not the author of sin. We are the authors of sin. How does that work with the sovereignty of God? Ask him when you, you meet him in heaven, but I, I would recommend that you ask him in Christ Jesus. Otherwise, you won't be asking him anything. You're just going to hear depart. So just because there are mysterious things about our holy faith, even regarding the will of God, don't let that stop you from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, Thou Son of David, have mercy, or following God. Say, sometimes people say, unless God reveals all of his mysteries to me, I'm not going to submit my will to God. That would be a bad idea. So God reveals his will in two ways, in scripture and in nature. Now, I don't, I do think God's revealed will in scripture is more understandable and more clear to us. When John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world, right? John 1. When he looks at Jesus and says, he is the Christ. When, when the Bible says in John 3, 16, this is my beloved son, if you believe in him, you have eternal life. What does that mean, beloved? John 3, 16, what does it mean? If you believe in Christ, you have eternal life. What does that mean? If you believe in Christ, you have eternal life. <laughs> it's very clear. Now, does that mean God's revealed will in the Bible is always equally as clear as John 3, 16? No. Beware of the Christian. Beware of the Christian church who says everything in the Bible is, is equally clear and they understand every part of the Bible and they, they don't, nothing is obscure to them. Run, run, run. Because they're mixing up a batch of Kool-Aid in the back. Um, the gospel is clear, but there are things that are obscure in the Bible. But I would argue that the revealed will of God in the Bible is clearer than, say, God's will in providence. And What do I mean by that? If you broke your leg, was it the will of God that you broke your leg from Ephesians 1.11? Yes. So we would be able to say, I guess it was God's will that I broke my leg because I have a broken leg. Here's where it's a, it is not as clear as the Bible. The question of, is not what happened, is why it happened. That is what is the perplexing thing. That's, that, that requires us to submit to God's providential will by faith. Sometimes we do not know why. Sometimes we think we know why God permitted it. If, if, God, is, if God is governing everything, and, 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 and the everything would include a broken leg, and God says in Romans 8.28, everything is going to work to your good, religiously or soulishly work to your good. That means somehow that broken leg is going to work to my good. And I'm using broken leg because it's not that bad of an example. But sometimes when the afflictive providence is much larger, we, we, we do not know why. Am I right with that? I think I'm right with that. But it is part of the will of God. And then that requires, when we don't understand the why, to submit our wills to God because we know God because we love him, we're loved by him, and we're going to look at his providence through his redemptive revelation scripture. I know I've passed from life to death. I know everything works to the good of God's people. I don't know how that is going to work. I don't know, but I know him, and I'm known by him, and I'm going to yield to him. That's this. Um, I want to... Um, so, so when we're talking about submitting ourselves to the will of God, I know submission is almost like, I don't know, antithetical to Americans. We're Americans. We don't submit to anybody. Um, um, I don't know about that. Um, but, but the reference, as, as I mentioned, ultimately is, um, is, is submitting to God even unto uh, death. When we look at that, and I, I've, I have as a secondary uh, title, The Will of the Lord Be Done, and it's the resolve of the servant to serve Christ. This is the resolve, both of the Apostle Paul and the friends of the Apostle Paul, us, friends of Christ, lambs of Christ, we are resolving to serve Jesus no matter what. No matter if he takes away our life, no matter if he takes away the life of our loved ones, come what may, we are resolving to serve him 
even to the end of our life. We will not be persuaded to let him um, go. There is, a, uh, there is a guy, Gardner Springs, either Springs singular or Springs plural, I forget, 1800s during the Civil War. He was a northerner, and he caused the split between the northern church and the southern church, Presbyterian. It was called the Gardner Springs Resolution. And he was trying to force the southern Presbyterians to swear allegiance to the federal government. I think it was wrong of him. He's a genius. His writing is really... He's an obscure guy, Gardner Springs, really good. Um, he, he was bad on that, but he's good in a lot of other things, which is us as Christians. We can be bad in other things, but great in other areas. Um, he says, fr from this idea of submitting ourselves and thinking about death and, and the death of our uh, people that we love, in reference to Christ, he says, the goal of our life is not to live long. The goal of our life is not to live long. The goal of our life is to live well. It's to live for Christ. That, that's interesting. Um, when we get married, ordinarily, we take a vow till death do us part. The goal of our marriage is not to be happy, healthy, wealthy, wise. The goal is not, the goal is to live for Christ. The goal is to be married to the glory of Christ. And you say, well, I'm going through a brutal time. Pray and fast and pray and fast and seek the Lord. The goal is not, the goal is to live for Christ. And so if we could look at this, the way the early Christians were looking at their Christian lives was with eternal glasses on it. I'm going to follow Jesus even unto death. And so um, I think it's helpful for us to, um, to learn from uh, the great cloud of witnesses and the way that these folks are resolved, this is a determination. I'm not going to leave my Jesus for anything. This is not carnal determination. There are people who constitutionally are brave, and there are people who constitutionally, physically, naturally are tremulous. They're fearful people. Is that not true? Do you not know unbelieving people, non-Christian people, who are exceedingly brave? They could, they could like storm the pillbox with their grand rifle, and then they get the, the, the uh, what is it, posthumous medal. They, they can be exceedingly brave. And then you can meet Christians like Pastor Timothy, who are afraid of their own shadow. But we're not talking about a physical, fleshly determination, I will resolve to stay with Jesus. You're going to fail. That's Apostle Peter. This is a by faith. This is a by faith. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit giving us faith. I'll look to Christ. I'll follow him. And when we fail, what does faith do? Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me. Lord Jesus Christ, don't let go of me. Lord Jesus Christ, enable me not to let go of you. This is not fleshly determination. This is not bootstraps. This is not that kind of an idea. This is um, people who are resolving by faith to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, come what uh, may. And when we say by faith, we mean in, in God, in his word, in the goodness of God, um, in the goodness of God in Christ. Our brother George quoted Galatians 2.20. It's one of my favorite verses. I have so many favorite verses, it's ridiculous. But Galatians 2.20, Paul says, it's not I who lives. But, it, but, but what? Finish the rest. It's Christ who lives in me. How does that work? Talk about mystery of mysteries. Jesus will say, the Father dwells in us, the Holy Spirit's in us, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ abides within us. We have the, how does this work? The triune God is in his people. Is by that. Is by the faith in the triune God. The Bible says for us as Christians, we walk by faith and not by sight. We're submitting our wills to God by faith and not by sight. And I'm going to argue it's almost the opposite of sight. Because sometimes when you look, you're in such afflictive providences. If you walked according to the afflictive providences, what would you conclude? God does not love me, is what you would conclude. Right? Or God is not. Have you ever been tempted to atheism as a believer? Have you ever been tempted to atheism? This is why I'm against watching really smart atheists on the YouTube. 
And I, I'm not saying that you can't every once in a while to inform you so you can understand the counter arguments. You get a steady diet of smart unbelievers, you're tempting yourself to atheism. These guys are looking at the redemptive will of God, saying, I'm going to trust in this God. We become that which we think about. Think about unbelief all day long, you're going to tempt yourself to atheism. So th this, is a, um, this is a trusting in God despite what we see, because we are known by God. So we're looking at faith revealed in this submission of will to God, and what kind of faith can submit to God's will in these afflictive providences, even facing death, which the Bible says is the final enemy. And again, I know there are people, I've met them, who can face death like, I don't know, Braveheart. Who's that guy? Something De Bruce. I don't know what his name is. You can face death like that, painting your head, and, and you're like charging the hill like the, the Scottish guy. I know there are those guys. I've seen a bunch of people die. Most people do not die like that, beloved. Most people do not die like the guy with the painted face screaming and saying. They don't do it that way. How do they do it? 1 Corinthians 15. How, how do they do it? We're sown in weakness. We're, we're sown in humility. That's how it happens. How can we face that with this kind of confidence? I will submit my will. That's faith. What kind of faith? That's strong faith. That's strong faith. Beloved, all faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And I know the Catholics say, what about verse 10? Throw verse 10 in there. Faith is a gift of, of, of God, the Holy Spirit, giving us faith in Christ, saving faith in Christ. But then the Bible says in verse 10, if you want to talk verse 10, I, uh, we believe in good works. Even the good works are a gift of God. I don't know why people think that proves the case against Protestantism. It doesn't for me. But the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ. He gives us that faith as the singular conduit by which we receive Jesus. That faith, whether it's large or small, is saving. You think, well, I'm just a, I'm just a, a tremulous, weak-kneed believer. I have little faith. Well, guess what? I have good news for you. If you have little faith, guess what you're going? You're on your way to home. You're going to the celestial city. Jesus says if you have faith the size of a what, you're going to heaven. A mustard seed. So it's not the size of our faith or the strength of our faith that ensures our salvation. It's the strength of our Savior. So little bitty, bitsy faith joins us to a mighty saving Savior. However, the Bible says that God distributes a measure of faith. There, there, there are tremulous, weak-kneed believers, small faith, faith, seed faith, as it were. And then there are stronger believers. They're stronger in the Lord. They have stronger faith. The Bible talks about babies, infants, brephoi, and then paideia, little toddlers, and then young men, young women, strong. And then it will talk about mature fathers and mothers. That's stages of the faith, that you have stronger faith. And sometimes we think, well, strong faith people, they must be strong people. So if you're a strong person, you, you, you have strong faith. I would argue it's the other way around. I would argue the weaker you look in externals, like when you're broken, it's not the person that has got cash hanging out of their pockets or they're super healthy and super wealthy or super respected. It's not those people who have the strong faith. Who are these guys? What were the early Christians? Read Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12. What were the early Christians? They're living in goatskins. Everybody hates them. Their relatives hate them. The Jews hated the Jews because you had become a Christian. The Gentiles hated the Gentiles because they had become a Christian. You, you get kicked out of all of your friendships and family. And you were chopped up like cordwood. That was the early, early church. And what was their spiritual vitality? When did, Je when did Jesus show himself mighty and strong? When did Paul have strong faith? When he had the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of the devil. So it works opposite the way that we think. We often think, I wish I could win the lottery. and be You need to be healthy. If you win the lottery and you don't have healthy, who was that guy? I don't know who he was when I was a kid. He was a billionaire. He didn't leave the, his uh, apartment. And he had, when he died, he had like a billion needles in him. He, not, I don't know his name. You know who I'm thinking of. So even if you're a billionaire and you don't have health, it's no good to having the money. So you need money and health. 
You think you would be a better Christian if you had tons of money and tons of health? Like Paul. Would you be able to go through what Paul went through and the way he went through it, read 1 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and say, the will of the Lord be done. I'm ready to die. You think healthy, wealthy Christians can go through what Paul went through and submit to God's will? No way. No way. It's the broken. God says in the book of James, I made poor people, physically poor people, rich in faith. In India, I watched a documentary last night, there are many Dalits coming to faith in Jesus. Why? Because they're untouchables. They're the dregs. And the other people are thinking, look at these dregs coming to Jesus. That's a, that's a 1 Corinthians 1, 27-31. That's exactly right. And so the way that the submission to the will of God in afflictive providences works is we often have stronger faith when we're in the crucible. It's a common saying, don't pray for an easy life. Pray for stronger faith. Don't pray for an easy life. Pray for stronger faith. Pray to shine for Jesus Christ in the crucible, knowing that he's in the crucible with you. That's what we're looking at. So they're, they're, they're submitting their will to God's will um, as revealed in Scripture, in, in providence, by faith, by strong faith, and they're trusting in Christ in hard uh, times. And one of the things that they're doing, it's kind of veiled, because we still live before the close of canon. So ordinarily when I say salvific uh, revelation, uh, redemptive revelation, for us now, this is the Bible. I'm a cessationist, that's another study, but no more scripture. So, uh, so the God the Holy Spirit is not recording any more scripture. It's done, finito, Revelation 22, donezo. Um, Reformation Heritage Books, is just if you want to go do some study, they just put out two new books on the cessation argument. That would be a good place to read. But Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. And so um, when we come here, these fellows are essentially looking at God's providence, what happens in their lives, particularly the afflictive providences, the hard things. They're looking at it through the lenses of Scripture, as it were. I know that there's still signs and wonders and so on, but if you just permit me the argument, they're looking through redemptive revelation. God has told them thus and so about the gospel and so on. So they're looking at what occurs in their life through, for our purposes, the Bible. Through the Bible. Um, the Bible will say, Psalm, one, Psalm 19, 1 through 6, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? And then from Psalm 19, 7 to the end, the law of God converts us. When the unbeliever looks at creation, can they know that God exists? Yes. But they, do they know God and his creation rightly? Not unless they're born again. It's only the born again person that looks at creation through the lenses of redemption that they understand rightly. That's what these guys are doing. So for us, when we are called to submit our wills to some hard thing that God permits or brings into our life, we're called to look at it through the Bible. We may not know the exact why, but we, we will be told in the Bible, and I hope to bring in at the end of the sermon, how to respond. Even if we don't know why. God, why? He maybe will answer, he might not answer, but he, he will tell us, this is how I want you to respond. But we're living through the lenses of Scripture, if that makes sense. And particularly, as I referenced, when we submit our wills to God, it's not a God that we don't know. These are believers. These are, this is what it means to be born again. When we are born again, John 3, 1 through 9, when we, our, our spirits are vivified, they're made alive, we know God and we're known by God. This isn't just mere classes on Christianity. I could teach the Dalai Lama the facts of, of the Christian faith, but unless he's born again, he doesn't believe him, and he doesn't know God. So we're, 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 we're submitting ourselves not to an, an unknown God, but to a known God and a God that loves us and a God that we love. And we know that's the case. And oftentimes we have to speak the truth of the scripture to ourselves in light of the afflictive providence. Because in the afflictive providence, the world of flesh and the devil are going to come to us and say, God doesn't love you. And we have to say back to that voice, John 3.16, he does love me. Right? 
even if we can't figure out why or how that's what they're doing. So they're walking by faith, they're walking by strong faith, they're reading providence through the lenses of scripture um, in these hard times. You remember Job? Job says this, hard times, hard times. Put yourself in Job's place. Do you know what Job lost? Everything. Lost his wealth, lost his children. I don't think he lost his wife, which he probably would have wanted to lose. Um, she told him, curse God and die. I don't even pick on the poor woman. I don't even pick on the poor woman. Curse God and die. And he said, I'm not going to. And Job said this, though God will slay me, I will hope in him. That's this. That's this. That is submitting the will of, to the will of God. You remember David? This is the good of afflictive providences. No one signs up for this. This is what submission to the will of God in hard times looks like. King David did it by faith. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Why does he say that? It is good for me that I was afflicted. Finish the rest of that sentence. That I may learn thy what? Thy statutes. We don't learn the Bible the best when we're on the mountain. We learn the Bible best when we're in the crucible. We don't learn about God the best on the mountain. And God puts us on the mountain all the time. He gives us good seasons, wives, husbands, kids, rain, crops. He gives us so many good things. But in the afflictive providences, he gives us the good God. We, we learn his law, we learn his gospel, we learn him. That's what these guys are submitting to. And the other thing, when we hear this language, the will of the Lord be done, who are they imitating? Remember that when, I don't know when it was, we were in Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel is not a Reformed church, but my wife and I spent some years, we, we've been everywhere. And so there was a time in Calvary Chapel, it, it didn't look like this kind of church, they loved the Lord. They, they loved the Lord. And back then the kids were wearing this pin, or, and they had everything, WWJD. I wish I came up with that because I would be driving a Brinks truck right now, but it, would, it was um, WWJD. What would Jesus do? Well, if it's in the Bible, and, G, and the Bible tells us what Jesus does, I'm for that. But sometimes you can get nutty with that. However, when we are looking, the will of the Lord be done, and these people say, the will of the Lord be done, who are they imitating? Christ. Christ. Is a good idea to imitate Christ. I don't, so if my super uber reformed people are making fun of Calvary Chapel, people for saying WWJD, shame on you for that. Because 1 Peter chapter 1, I think, God left us an example to follow in his footsteps. That's WWJD, beloved. That's the imitation of Jesus. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. So when we say, oh God, thy will, not my will be done. When did Jesus say that? Hard times or easy times? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, Lord, if it's possible, take it away. But if it's not possible, thy will be done and not what? Not my will. Not my will. If I could have my will for you all in me, we would be fabulously healthy. Everybody would be fabulously healthy, would have plenty of dough, and would love Jesus ridiculously. That would be my will. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. And I'm not Lord. And you're not the Lord. He's the Lord. And so here Jesus says, this, it, what, what is Jesus saying? Why is Jesus in such dire straits? Why is he sweating blood in prayers? He's about to receive the wrath of God and he's about to have the love of God turn away from him. My God, my God. And Jesus shows us what to think, what to say, what to do. He's the example. Thy will be done. They're imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Stephen say as he was being stoned to death? Imitated the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say on the cross? Father, into thy hands what? I commit my spirit. What did Stephen say as he was dying looking at the risen Christ? Lord Jesus Christ, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Christians, the more we look at Christ, you, you see this all the time. It, um, 
who we spend time with, who we listen to, who we look at, we become like them. This is why kiddos sound like they're folks. If you're from New England or you're from Boston or you're from New York or you're from South Carolina, wherever you're from, and you're listening to your mother and father talk with their particular dialect, and you're looking at them all day long, you become like them. When we're in the crucible, we stop looking at the world and we look at Jesus. And the more we look at Jesus, guess what happens? We become more like Jesus. We imitate him. And the other thing that we're, they're doing, not only they're imitating Jesus, they're obeying Jesus Christ. I say it all the time. I say it all the time. I hope I don't say it too much. We are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. The faith alone can never, we, we, we can never say we are justified by faith plus faithfulness before God. However, however, and this is a big however, faith without what is dead faith. It's not saving. It works. Faith without works is dead faith. It's not justifying before God. It's false. When these Christians say, the will of the Lord be done, they're imitating Christ, but they're obeying Christ. And how are they obeying Jesus? If you were raised in any kind of liturgical church, like Greek Orthodox, or Roman Catholic, or Episcopalian, or Lutheran, anything like that, with a higher form of liturgy, you probably said the Our Father, or the Lord's Prayer, every week. I did. Right? Thy will be done. They're obeying Christ. Jesus says in Luke 6, 46, something like that, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? So though we are justified before God by faith alone, our faith is justified before men and before self by our obedience. They're obeying the Lord Jesus. And I want to end with just some practical applications how do we grow in our knowledge of God's will and then in our submission to God's will? How do we do that practically? When I mention it, you have to be born again. You, ha you cannot submit to a God that you do not know. Now, I don't want to depress anyone with what I think about the numbers or the percentages of those who are truly born again versus those who are profession-only Christians, but there is a percentage. Whatever the percentage is, God knows. There are people who say, I do know Jesus, and they do. They have true faith. There are people who say, I am a Christian, I know Jesus, and they don't. If they're not born again, they can't submit themselves to God in Christ because they don't know God in Christ. And so I'm going to ask you this question, and then you only can answer it. Do you know Jesus? Do you know God in Christ? Like, no, no. Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you trust in him? And then the other way that we know this God, to know his will, to submit to his will, is in, the, is in the word. Is in the word. I had a, a person in my family one time say, well, John, you're a Christian. I said, that's true. And the person said, I want to know God's will for, for me and my girlfriend. And I said, so what do you want to know? And then he asked the question, and I said, I can tell you what God's will is either marry her or marry her, right? He said, can you be sure? I said, I can be 100% sure. Well, Uncle John, how can, how can you do that? Because I can read. So sometimes when we're saying, well, what is God's will on this? What is God's will on that? It's the Bible. So we grow in understanding God's will and with the ability to yield to God's will as we live, live in the scripture. And living in the scripture with an eye, particularly with the afflictive providences, to look at the great cloud of witnesses. How did our mothers and our fathers in the faith trust in God and Christ in afflictive times? How did they do it? Read Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12. How did they do it? How did they, how did they go through all of these things and they wouldn't let Christ go? And then we follow them. They're the great cloud of witnesses. So we've got to live in the word of God. And the other thing 
And this is going to seem so simple because you're saying, well, John, this is just the means of grace. This is exactly right. It's prayer. Bible is God talking to us. Prayer is us talking back to God. I will say this, and I fall into this category. If we are trying to submit ourselves to God, especially in hard times, in such a way that glorifies the gospel, in those hard times, don't focus on the hard times so much. Don't talk about them so much. And especially don't talk to other human beings about them so much. You think, what does that mean? It means this. Talk to God more about it. Talk to God more about it. I, I, I guess I was raised in the Jerry Springer family because we let it all hang out. And the problem with letting it all hang out is you're focusing on the affliction. Stop that. I'm preaching to myself. Focus on the Christ. Focus on the Christ. Focus on God. Focus on His Word. And then ask God, what good thing are you showing me? Help me glorify you in this painful thing. It's prayers where it's at. Remember, who we speak to most is going is to indicate what we're going to become like. All of us as Christians, I know this is true. I know this is true. Are you happy with your prayer life? Are you? I'm not happy with mine. I'm not happy with mine. I don't pray enough time, quantitatively and qualitatively. I don't pray zealously enough. We will grow in yielding our will to God as we come to Him in prayer. And then I would say this, related to that, as we labor to obey, there's a speculative kind of Christianity, which I don't think is biblical Christianity, and then a practical Christianity. Now, I'm not separating doctrine from practice. Speculation is just mere theoretical to, under, to, to play with a theory. I don't think you'll ever really know the Bible if you don't mean to put it into practice. How will you know how to love your enemies when you have an enemy and you love them? Not when you write a 20-page paper on loving your enemies with no intention to obey. And how would I apply it to this? If you or I want to grow in our love to God such that we would yield to God in hard things, we should labor to obey the will of God that we do understand. That we do understand. Even in the hard times. Say, Lord God, I'm in pain. Lord God, I don't know how, how or why, but I know that you want me to love you and submit to you. I prayed it at the opening, I think. At the end of all of this, hard times, we're going to learn about a sweet Christ. But we will sow, the Bible says, in tears, in some glorious day, all of these hard things. Uh, the Bible says, joy will cometh in the morning. Amen? May God be pleased <clears throat> with the preaching of his word.